On today's crew call, we have British filmmaker Rose Glass, who's talking about her sophomore directorial effort, the Kristen Stewart and Katie O'Brien crime thriller, Love Lies Bleeding, which took Sundance by storm and opens on March 8th from A24. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. So Rose, tell us about from whenceforth did this brilliant crime noir, Love Lies Bleeding, come? What were your inspirations here? Oh, God, it's hard to pinpoint. I mean, I, I think uh, pretty early on, like whilst I was, I think I started sort of thinking about this towards the end of Post for St. Maud. And going forward, I just knew I wanted to kind of try something different and have some fun and sort of have a go at something I wasn't sure if I could pull off. As in like tonally, I wanted to make it very, something very pulpy and quite dark and melodramatic and funny. Um, but I think initially it was just the, the idea came to me that I'd love to make something about a female bodybuilder. Um, that just seemed like sort of psychologically interesting kind of territory to look at. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then the story developed from there. When Kristen Stewart boarded, did that change any direction of the script or the project from how you could open it up more? I mean, to be honest, I was picturing Kristen in this role from really early on writing it. Obviously, I had no idea if she'd um, if she'd ever actually do it or not. But it was so she was very kind of consistent and in line with with how I was imagining this this character from quite early on. And um, yeah, I mean, definitely once once you've got Kristen actually sort of signing up to do something totally, things things seem seem to speed up um, production wise, and suddenly um, doors seem to open a bit, and you have a slightly um, larger, funner toolkit to play with and more resources. And then Katie O'Brien, tell us about finding her and how that impacted the project. So Katie O'Brien, I mean, she kind of found us in the end. We, the role that she plays Jackie and was was quite a mission to to cast. I was getting quite nervous to be honest that we that we wouldn't find the right person because I was really fixed from the beginning of, of wanting to find someone who really could physically convince as a bodybuilder, but obviously needed to be. A really amazing actor as well and it's quite a big dramatic lead role and um and yeah it turned out to be quite difficult to find someone who encapsulated all of these things you know we we work with betty may casting directors who are amazing and kind of you know scoured the country and we saw so many people um a lot of bodybuilders wrestlers shot putters weightlifters you know women who had this kind of physicality but hadn't really acted before or some actors who had a sporting background anyway we, we just couldn't find couldn't find the right person and then in the end Betty May put a, a casting call out on Twitter and I think somebody who'd been a fan of Katie's from one of her other films she saw it and sent it to her and then Katie was like wow have, have I not heard about this well I'd be perfect for this so um <laughs> thank you to whoever that fan was she she'd already been in the Mandalorian had you seen it in that yeah so that was the thing so she you know she was she she you know she is an actor already but she she had this she's yeah, she was in the Mandalorian and um the the latest ant-man film and but this this was kind of her first big kind of lead dramatic role i'd say but she's someone who had had already had experience doing bodybuilding herself i think like in you know in her 20s and and is also a martial artist and has been training and doing all this stuff all her life so she's already got this you know um really impressive kinds of impressive physicality which was which was integral to the role but also was just this amazing performer and just gave this um, beautiful performance as Jackie and just is very fascinating to watch, I think. And yeah, she's, she's phenomenal. 
How long did it take you to write roughly Love Lies Bleeding? Ah, I'm not sure. Um, I think me and I wrote, co-wrote it with Veronica Tafilska, who's a, who's a writer-director as well. We start, I think we were writing it on and off during lockdown. I don't know, maybe a couple of years it was in development from start to finish, maybe less, year and a half. It's got all these great, wonderful twists and turns. My question to you is what pressure do you put on yourselves to keep it moving? Like, is there a pressure that every 15 pages, something has to happen? Not not in that sense. I don't think either me or Vera are the kind of person who's going to be like, right, well, this inciting thing must happen on page, whatever it's meant to be. Um, but I'd say it more stems from just having kind of a short attention span <laughs> and being, you know, not wanting people to be bored. Um, and... I don't know, I, I think just sort of that was the sort of energy I very much wanted this this film to have. I've, I felt a sort of lot of energy coming off the back of St. Maud, I guess, going, you know, having got to make a film and, and get, get well received was so kind of exciting. And um, I was feeling confident and I don't know, maybe some of that sort of momentum. Also, it kind of, I guess it sort of fits with the story. It's kind of about excess and ambition in, on some levels and it just needed to feel propulsive and, and energetic. And, and I don't know, that's partly stylistic thing as well I guess um and also like you know the kind of style I've developed with Mark Towns who's my editor who he worked on St Maud as well I think we're both fairly brutal about whether something's essential and entertaining and if it's not get rid of it and then as far as the ending goes and I'm not going to spoil that here but keeping it a surprise how do you keep it fresh for yourself when you're in the writing process does it help to have the partner and how is everyone else going to be surprised how do you know that? Is it just by when you put the script out there, the feelers that you get? Yeah, and I think I think co-writing did feed into that. I really enjoyed co-writing. I hadn't done it before. And it means that you you just sort of, you're quite spontaneously feeding ideas back and forth. You're constantly trying to entertain and surprise each other in the room as you're, as you're figuring out the story. Um, so that definitely helps, helps keep things sort of fresh, I guess. Um, figuring out the ending. I mean, it took us a while to, to figure the ending out. I think there are quite a lot of different iterations of the sort of final climactic bit. So I guess it didn't, it didn't sit around too long for us to ever get bored. So it's, and I guess as soon as you start going into prep, then obviously like logistics change and things, you know, it's, it's this sort of constantly shifting weird beast that you're trying to kind of ferry along with all these different people. So it's constantly shifting, I guess, which stops anything ever feeling too boring or unsurprising. When you were writing the script, what scene did you begin with? And where did it wind up in the film? I think because the sort of the the very initial thing was just knowing that the that one that the main character would be a bodybuilder who was training for a competition. And that, you know, as she was training for the competition, she was going to be falling in love and everything would would kind of go horribly wrong. So I think probably I'd thought that the film would maybe culminate at the competition. Basically, this bodybuilding competition. I basically wanted I knew that um it would be great to sort of get this character to a point where this is like the biggest most important day of her life and obviously everything goes as catastrophically wrong as it can but do it in a way that was I don't know had some sort of surreal kind of ideas and images of how that would of how that would um, transpire and that stuff is in the film um but yeah something to do with the bodybuilding I guess and was it always your intent to set it in 1980s America or did you start off in another era and place um, not instantly. I think for a little while we were sort of umming and ahhing about where and when to set it. Um, but I think the first draft by then, it was already in, in that time and place in America. 
think I knew I didn't want it to be a con- like set in the present day. I don't know, something about setting things a little bit further removed from the here and now. Just No mobile phone. Well, that, to be honest, does come into it. If you're trying to make your characters' lives difficult, it's really annoying if they can whip out their phone and go on the internet and check it. Um, so there's a, a bit of that, to be honest. But more, I think it's... Gives everything. I, don't know, I think particularly also this time and place in America, particularly in films, it gives things almost like a slightly mythological kind of um, feel. Everything sort of feels a little bit more folkloric, and you can sort of, which I think because I like sort of playing with and leaning into archetypes and tropes and things like that, it seemed like a fitting time to set it. And I think also probably there was something about it being like at the end of the 80s, like just before sort of tipping over into the 90s that sort of felt appropriate for the sort of um, style and attitude of the film. It's kind of, yes, it's about excess and ambition, but it's looking at it from a slightly nihilistic, cynical sort of point of view. So, you know, just at the tipping point of the end of a decade of excess and greed and um, ambition before you head into nihilistic 90s kind of vibes. I only have a few more questions. Cinematic inspirations, aesthetically, visually. To, to be honest, this this film a lot more so than with Maud. I was kind of trying to to ignore the the obvious ones. I mean, again, I think as soon as you set a film in this time and place and have, you know, two lovers and murders and guns and on the road and these kinds of things, there's a lot of famous films that leap to mind that could be that could cast a shadow over it or could you could feel the influence of. So I sort of deliberately didn't revisit things like. Wild at Heart, Natural Born Killers, or Thelma and Louise, um, and try to just sort of be led by what seemed to be the most interesting version of this particular story and characters. Although I think I think uh, more like once you've nearly finished writing the script and you've got to like go to the next bit of then trying to <laughs> trying to explain it to people and get it into their heads, I then sort of retroactively gave. I listed off stuff like some like weird Venn diagram between like. Showgirls, Saturday Night Fever and Crash, the Cronenberg one, for some of the sort of more like seedy Americana-y kind of feels. But then also I think I told some of, suggested to some of the actors to watch like The Night Porter. Um, and there's this amazing um, cyberpunky film called A Snake of June, which are, and both of them are just quite sort of um, dark, strange, erotic kind of films. Um, so none of, you know, it was more like giving people a, a weird platter of, stuff to maybe try and get their head in the right place for when they're reading the script for whatever reason so like the actors it's like don't really you know this film's going to be taking place in a world that's not quite here and now not quite you know you can take some big swings basically as far as getting this project off the ground you finish the script who's the catalyst who's the engine i see daniel batsick's name as executive producer on this i mean his name is on every single great piece of cinema that's coming out right now. You know, Poor Things, Last Night in Soho. Can you talk about the just the engine that, that made this happen? Did this get put together rather quickly? Was this a phone call to A24 and it was all set? No, I mean we we predominantly developed it, or we developed it for longer at first with Film Four, and then and then teamed up with A24. So I. I um, I mean, a combination of all of those guys, I guess. And Ollie, you know, yes, Daniel's Daniel's wonderful. Ollie Madden, we were kind of was were involved with more closely, particularly in the development of this, um, and and some of the other guys there. And and so them, and obviously my producers, Oliver Kasman and Andrea Cornwall, who I worked with on Saint Maud, have just been, um, you know, my rocks and kind of like thought white knuckled this thing through. 
Anno 24, obviously, have been phenomenal. I mean, all of those guys, basically, I feel I've just been, like, incredibly privileged to be given the opportunity of, like, doing something outlandish and ridiculous like this and generally generally have been faced with an encouragement of extremity and, yeah. How long was the shoot? Uh, I think it was, like, six, six-ish weeks, six and a half weeks, and then we did, like, five days pickups sort of halfway through post-production. So, yeah, but it's like it never fills enough time. I mean, even having this, you know, bigger, much bigger budget than doing more, you're like, oh, my God, amazing. I'm doing this. I'm going to have so much more stuff to play with. And you do. But you just sort of you constantly fill whatever the rim of your limitations are. So you're constantly kind of like just trying to push things to the edge of what you're allowed to do. But hopefully that results in something interesting. Was the VFX daunting? Yeah, I mean, it was really fun. We had like we did have some VFX stuff in St. Moore. But, yeah, this was the first time, I'd, you know, we had... Um, yeah, this is the first time I did anything with like, you know, gray screen, like sort of with tennis balls on sticks and having to sort of do all that kind of um, directing actors against nothing, um, which I'm sure is much stranger for the actors than it is for me. But it was, it was still pretty, pretty odd. Oh, it was great fun. And, you know, and it was the first time I worked with like a stunt coordinator and um, all this kind of stuff and, you know, guns and lots of all the fun stuff you, you dream of messing around with when you want to make films. And, and my last question is, of course, what is next? Uh, I'm, I'm writing something which I'm quite excited about, um, but um, won't say anything else about just yet to, in case I jinx it or... No hint on genre, like a Western. I doubt I'd do a Western. Oh, whoever, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, probably both this and St. Maud and probably the other ones are kind of maybe too indecisive to just pick one. So I'm sure it'll have elements of more than one thing. Um, but yeah, I'm quite excited about it. Rose Glass, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deadline's Crew Call podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.